My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Alpine Church, and we're, I hope you've been reading with us and following along with us through our series on the book of Revelation. Um, if you have, then you know that today we're looking at chapter 19 and 20. We're coming to the climax. We're coming to the culmination of the story, the, the narrative of the book of Revelation. Now, if you're a movie fan, you know that one of the themes that's pretty common in, in the movie world is movies about the end of the world, right? Can you name some? Just shout them out, right? Movies about the end of the world? War of the Worlds, Alien Invasion, right? What else? 2012. Armageddon, a big asteroid is going to hit, right? Okay. Um, pick any Avengers movie, right? Any Marvel movie, like, is about the threat to the end of the universe. There's all kinds of things. Uh, world's End, um, Finding a Friend for the End of the World. There's so many. They go on and on. And, and what happens in all of these, there's some danger that threatens the world as we know it, right? It, maybe it isn't an alien invasion or a big asteroid that's going to hit. Or maybe it's some kind of a natural disaster that, that takes over the, the world, or, or a nuclear bomb, that maybe theme was more prevalent a couple decades ago, but or some other man-made catastrophe, an environmental thing, or a zombie apocalypse, or whatever. And all of these movies, most of them have some kind of a human hero, right, who, who saves the day, who, who kind of figures it out, and keeps the world from being destroyed. But as entertaining as those can be, and they can be pretty thought-provoking sometimes, too, um, none of them really gets the end of the world right. right. We know that because we have God has showed us what the end of the world is going to be like. And, and it always, in God's version of the story, the real version, it involves the person of Jesus Christ. I've never seen that in any of the, you know, end of the world movies yet. Uh, Jesus Christ is coming back. And that's a major part of the story of Revelation as it moves toward that culmination, right? We've seen a couple of important themes. We've seen this theme in Revelation of this major, cosmic, gigantic battle going on between God and Jesus and the people of God on one hand versus Satan and, and the leaders that he raises up and the institutions that he, that he empowers and all the people who follow him on the other hand. And sometimes it looks, to be honest, in our world like, like evil's going to have the upper hand. Well, in today's passage, we see kind of how that conflict ends up being resolved. And we've seen in the book of Revelation, we've put a lot of emphasis on how it reveals Jesus and the person and character of Christ is revealed to us over and over and over again. And, and so today in chapter 19 and 20, we see Jesus revealed in all of his power and majesty uh, returning to win this final victory over evil. Now that great moment, that return of Christ and all the things that go with that are described throughout the whole Bible. Almost every book of the New Testament has, makes reference to it. And each reference gives us one piece of this larger puzzle. And so today I want to see how the book of Revelation describes this amazing future event, this, the return of our King, King Jesus. And I want to focus on three things today that we find in chapter 19 and chapter 20. The first of them is that Jesus will return as a mighty king prepared for battle. Now, do you ever run into somebody that you knew a long time ago? Like maybe you knew them when they were a child, and you're not, you know, when 
when you were younger, and, and now you look at him today, you go, like, wait, wait a minute. I, is that the same person? I have a hard time wrapping my head around that, that person because now they're an adult and they have children, and I remember them as a squirrely teenager or, you know, as a little child, and so it's like they're so different now. Well, when Jesus came the first time, the first time we met him, he came as an infant, right? Every December we celebrate Jesus coming to the world as this lowly infant born into this ordinary working class family and he didn't have any advantages of wealth or royalty or higher education. In fact, I believe that if you, were, if you saw Jesus in a crowd, he wouldn't really even stand out necessarily above it. Like he didn't wear a halo around, around all the time, right? That was then, this is now. Because when he comes back again in Revelation chapter 19, things will be strikingly different. Let's take a look. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. See, John says that the gates of heaven are now just thrown open, and he gets this expansive picture. The first things he notices is a horse, and then the rider comes into his view, and we know from the context that the rider of this white horse is Jesus himself. You'll see how that plays out in a minute. But he tells us this rider has a title, and we're going to look at, we're going to notice the titles that are given to Jesus in this passage. His title is Faithful and True, and and. All these titles are so appropriate to Jesus because he keeps his promises. He's faithful. Everything that he speaks is true. We can count on it. And then, and then he has another name written, he says there, on him that no one knows but himself. And so we don't even know what that name is, but it reminds us that, that Jesus is beyond us and that he can't really fully be comprehended by us, his finite creation. And then moving into verse 13, it says, He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. So here's the, the second title, or the, the second one was one we don't know. Here's the third title that we're given. He's called the Word of God. And that's a title denoting his deity, his divinity. Because in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so this is the kind of being that Jesus is coming back. Out of his mouth, it says, comes this sharp sword. Now that, that's, okay, you know there's a lot of symbolism, right? In book, that doesn't mean he's got like this weapon sticking out of his face, right? This is symbolic that the word of Jesus has this power. It has this definitive power that can, all he has to do is say it and it is so. He just speaks his victory and it will happen. And that tells us why he's here. He's come here in chapter 19. It's time for battle. Now in verse 15, Says, he will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. And on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. So here's the, here's the last title that we see. This is maybe the, the most significant title of them all. 
It says he's the king of all kings, the Lord above all lords. There's a lot of kings, a lot of people with authority, a lot of lords in the world. They're not all political. They're in different spheres of life. There's people who have authority of all kinds in our world. But there's only one who has the final authority. There's only one king who rules them all, who's supreme over every other authority. There's only one capital L, Lord, in the universe, and that's Jesus. And this shows us why this mighty king has showed up. In chapter 19, he's come to release the fierce wrath of God. Because you see, throughout the whole book of Revelation, we've seen over and over and over and over again, the true heart and character of humanity comes out in rebellion against God. And so Jesus says, enough. Enough rebellion against God. God's wrath, that's a word that we talked about a few weeks ago. I don't know if you were here and you recall, but God's wrath... It sounds like a negative thing, right? Like God is just like really angry at everybody. But what God's wrath is, is it's his unwavering hostility toward evil. It's God's implacable opposition to evil in every form. Now, you understand this if you've ever felt wrath, anger, indignation yourself when you heard about a child who's been abused or about a teenage girl kidnapped into sex trafficking. Okay, that makes you hate evil with indignation and passion when you hear about those things. That's a little glimpse of the wrath of God, only his is infinite and it's perfect, not not tainted by any kind of sin or any kind of uh, injustice. And so... When Jesus came before, 2,000 years ago, he came as a redeemer to die on the cross. Now when he returns again, he comes as a ruler bearing a crown. And what that means for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, what that means is that there's reason for hope, right? Because in your earthly life, listen, we all live in this broken world. We know that in this earthly life, we will not always see evil defeated, Right? We, we see the times, it seems like so many times bad people get away with all kinds of corrupt and violent behavior, and it seems like, you know, they're just, they're never going to have to answer for that. And we've been the victims of that sometimes in our own lives. But Revelation says that's not the end of the story. That's not how things turn out in the end. That Jesus is coming back as this mighty king, and he's going to establish a righteous rule once and for all. Now, as we go into the next verses, the scene shifts a little bit. We're going to see how in the Bible's version of the end of the world that Jesus will be victorious in battle. Not just that he comes to battle, but he's going to be victorious over Satan and all of his enemies. Now, to be honest, chapter 19 and 20, especially chapter 20, has raised a lot of controversy of different kinds of interpretations of what's going on here. Right, so there's different conclusions that scholars have made about the timing, about the symbolism, about the characters, and what's really going on here. And Christians have actually been known to like duke it out over these different interpretations. Right? We can get pretty obsessed about our own way of looking at this. And so in this series, we're trying not to pitch any one system of interpretation. So there's a lot of topics here and some important topics in these chapters that we're not going to try to solve today, okay? We're not going to try to even wade into them today because we said at the beginning our goal in this series is not to sort out every detail. Our goal is not to preach some interpretive system, but our goal is to focus on Jesus as he's unveiled in the book of Revelation, 
and, and to focus on, on everything we see about Jesus. And so even with all the different points of disagreement, of different interpretive schools of thought in the book of Revelation, here's an important fact that everybody agrees upon, and that is that Jesus will be victorious over Satan, over evil, over all of those who oppose God, right? And so as we move to verse 17, the focus shifts from heaven to earth. It shifts from this glorious Lord Jesus mounted and ready to ride into battle. It focuses down more on what's actually happening now on the earth in the mortal world. And so let's take a look, starting in verse 17. John says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Now that's a pretty gruesome picture there. Now, other times in the Bible when, when uh, we're invited to the banquet that prepared by God, it's like, it's like a, a glorious banquet for, for his people to enjoy. This is different. This is a picture that's trying to show us how gruesome and how great this battle is going to be and how what, what the defeat is going to look like. And so we go on, and in the next verses, he talks more about that. In verse 19, John says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and, on his, ar- and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. Now this is why we've encouraged you to be reading through the whole book of Revelation in this series because we see some some characters that we met earlier. We met them in chapter 13 and following where we have this um, antichrist, the beast. We have this false prophet. We have, these are the, the human representatives of Satan, and he refers to the things that, that they're trying to accomplish in the world, and now they've gathered all of their allies, all the kings of the earth, to make war against Christ and the armies of heaven. Now, is this a literal picture or a symbolic one? I don't really know, because I'm not sure how an army gathers to fight against Jesus when Jesus is in heaven. I, so, but the point is, in every symbol, there's a meaning behind it. And, and the truth that, that this reveals is that Satan is always trying to defeat God wherever he can in this world. That political powers represented by the Antichrist and false teachers represented by the false prophet, they're always going to be against God and trying to oppose what God is doing in the world. But what I really want you to notice here, to take home from this today is look at this battle. This battle is not even close. Right? It's not... When you look at a movie and you see a battle scene in a movie, you notice there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of unexpected twists and turns. And there's a point where the good guys look like they're going to lose, you know, and they're hanging in the balance. And when suddenly something changes and some, uh, the last moment when hope is lost, you know, something happens like reinforcements show up or the hero comes riding in to save the day, right? That's what makes a good dramatic movie battle, right? Well, Revelation 19 on that basis would make a pretty poor movie because 
There's no threat to the good guys here. There's no, there's no drama. There's no contest. We see the enemy leaders are just captured very quickly, and, and the entire army uh, is just defeated. Boom. Jesus just speaks like the sword of his mouth. Boom, and it's over. That's it. That's it, like a 10-minute movie. But here Jesus is revealed for who he is, and we saw that title, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. We see here that's not just a catchphrase. No one who opposes God's rule will escape. You see, verse 20, the Antichrist, the false prophet, are thrown into a burning lake of fire. And, we, and that connects us into Revelation chapter 20, because in verse 10 it shows another very important detail about that. At the end of the day, after all the battles are over, it says, Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur joining the beast and the false prophet, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So all the forces of evil get their comeuppance in the end. Now why does it matter to know about this great final battle? Well, you know what? It, I, hope, I hope you find it an encouragement to know that one day all evil as we know it is going to be exterminated. Because this is where all those end-of-the-movie, end-of-the-world movies where they do kind of get it right. Because usually the bad guys lose in the end. Good triumphs over evil. And not just until the sequel comes out, right? And this, in the real story, it's not just, there's not going to be a sequel where, you know, evil comes up again. But, but forever. And doesn't that seem like the way life is in our world? There seems to be just never-ending supply of evil, Right, One dictator gets deposed and another one comes up. You know, There's one global pandemic and it gets solved and then another one comes up another generation later. And, or whether it's famine or some political uh, problem, it just keeps evil, just keeps showing up in one form or another or another. We never feel like we're, we're safe. We never feel like it's cured. But you see, Jesus' victory at the end guarantees that evil will be done at some point. And Satan and his allies are completely destroyed for good. And next week we'll see what a world looks like without evil, without any violence or injustice or exploitation or hatred or greed. Doesn't that give you something to hang on to when, when you feel you're like you're pummeled by evil in your life? That you know something better is coming, that it's not going to last forever. We're not there yet. We're not there yet in this life. And we're not quite there yet in the book of Revelation either. There's one more thing that has to happen for Jesus' rule to be completely established. And we see that at the end of chapter 20. It's the last scene of the movie before we can move on to the sequel next week. And the last thing that we see here is that Jesus will righteously judge one final time. Now we've talked a lot in the book of Revelation about how there's a day of reckoning coming. We call it the day of the Lord. When all evil is finally set right, when everything is put to the way it was supposed to be in the, in the, in the beginning. And that's so hopeful for any one of us who's ever been abused or exploited or hurt at the hands of somebody else and know that everything is going to be set right one day. But you know what? There's another side of that picture. Because all of us, not only have we been the recipients of evil at some point in time, but you know what? All of us have also done evil ourselves in one way or another. 
And so this becomes a sobering picture as well as an encouraging one too. So look at chapter 20 in verse 11. He says, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it and the earth and sky fled from his presence and they found no place to hide. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Now that reference on top is not correct. This is just going on in chapter 20, verse 13. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. And then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. And this lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, he says, everybody who's ever lived is going to stand before the throne of God. There's no place to hide. Heaven and earth try to hide. He says, they can't hide. He says, all were judged. And it says, both great and small. Nobody's exempt. No matter how powerful, no matter how inconsequential, Nobody will be exempt. One day we'll all stand before the throne of God. And the basis of that judgment, he says, is how we lived. It talks about books being opened. Now today, contextually, we might say, God's going to play the video of your life. He's going to play the movie of your life. But it's what it's trying to communicate is saying that all that you have ever done is known to God. And none of it has been forgotten. And so the time you lied so that you'd get credit instead of somebody else, that's right there in the books. And that time that you cheated on your taxes or stole from your employer, Ben, that's right there. You thought nobody knew, but God knew. And those times that you lusted after pornography or those times that you gossiped about others, or that time that you hit your child in anger or those murderous thoughts that you had toward your neighbor, all of those are there. God knows. Whatever it is, God knows about it. It won't be hidden. Everything hidden will be revealed in that final day. That's a sobering thought. So what does it take to make it through that judgment? What's a passing, what is a passing grade there? What is it, how will we survive? You know what? The Bible says the passing grade on that day, 100%. 100%. 20 out of 20 on the quiz. It takes a perfect score because God is perfect, because God is holy. God's not just 90% perfect, 90% holy. God is so perfect and holy, he doesn't grade on the curve. It's not, we don't compare against other people around us who maybe make us look better, but our comparison is against God. And look what happens if a person fails the test. The book of Revelation describes a lake of fire. It describes the second death. And like everything in Revelation, we, it's a fair question to ask, is this literal or is it symbolic? Because I'm not sure how death and the grave get thrown into a lake of fire. So there, maybe there's some symbolism here, but it doesn't really matter because even the symbols in Revelation describe something that's underlying is real. And so certainly this is picturing some kind of a real and horrible fate of separation from God forever of a, as some kind of a tormented existence for everybody who has not lived up to the perfection and holiness of God. Now there's going to be a lot of religious people there that day. There's going to be a lot of moral people there because everybody's going to be there. 
There's going to be people from every religious tradition that there is, every people from every ethical standard that there is, and I believe that there's going to be a lot of people, religious and moral people, who will be very, very surprised when the books are opened because there's only been one person who ever lived who lived a perfect, sinless life, and that's Jesus. So what's our hope? Is there any hope? Well, he says there's another book. It's not the record of our failures and of our sins. He calls it the book of life. And this is mentioned other places in the scripture. And and we understand the book of life then is the record of those whose sins are not held against them. Why? Because they've entrusted their lives and their eternities to Jesus Christ. And so look at how that's described in another part of the New Testament. Colossians 2. For For those in Christ, this record will not be counted against them. Is the books are going to be opened. But he says, you know, if you're in Christ, if you belong to him, this record will not be counted against you. He says, for why? How can God do that? Because Christ has paid the penalty for them. And you, he says, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having what? Forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's the answer to, the, to what's in the books. What Jesus did for us on the cross doesn't make us any less guilty. It doesn't blot it out of the book. It's still there in the book. Everything that we did, we all stand condemned before God, and rightly so. But what happens is something like this. When, when my book is open, or my video is shown, and all of the issues of my life are brought into the light, then Jesus steps forward and says, you know what? I paid for those sins. I paid for those sins. Let him through. I paid for her sins. Let her through. So how do you get your name in the book of life? That's the operative question, right? How do you get your name in that book? Well, first you admit your sin and your need and the evil things that, you, that have, have taken place in your heart and your life and you acknowledge that you deserve God's judgment. It's that moment of, of truth in our lives. And then secondly, we say, well, I don't want that. I, I don't want this life that I've lived. I want to turn from my sin. I want to turn from my self-determined, self-centered life and turn to God and reorient my heart toward him. And in the same moment, then third, I, I then trust in Jesus alone and what he did on the cross to be forgiven and to be right with God, recognizing it's a complete gift of his grace. It's nothing I can earn or deserve. So I stop trusting in anything else. I stop trusting in myself. I stop trusting in my own moral goodness or my church or my religion or my spirituality or the good things that I've done and just receive this gift simply by trusting in what Jesus did for me. And then something supernatural happens. God creates something new in you. You become part of his forever family. You enter into this new life that's empowered and directed by him that starts now and lasts for forever. So this is the end of human history as we know it. Jesus conquers all of his enemies. God judges all evil. So next week we see a completely different world when you look at chapter 21 and 22 than any of us have ever seen or ever experienced before. Well, what will be the end of your history? What will be the culmination of your story? That all depends on the decisions that you make here and now. 
Because anybody can get into the book of life. It's not some kind of a secret insider club. It's not for people who are overachievers and high performers. In fact, far from it. Jesus invites anyone to come who will follow him. It doesn't matter if you're good enough or worthy enough. All of us fail the judgment of our deeds. But Jesus offers to write your name in the book of life as a pure gift of his grace as you admit your need and trust in him. If you want to know more about that and what that entails, then come talk to us today. But let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you've done for us, that you have history in your hand, that this all going to a, a future that is right and that you're going to win in the end and you're going to save the day and evil will all be removed. And we're so encouraged about that, God, because we've suffered under the thumb of evil in our life in different ways. But we're also sobered by the evil that we find in ourselves and knowing that that's going to be judged as well. And so, God, we cast ourselves on you today. Jesus, we cast ourselves on you. In our need, we say, you've got, you've got to do this, and you have done it. We trust you to be right with God at the day of judgment, to enter into the blessing that you have in store for us. So help us each to evaluate where we at and make sure that we know that we put our confidence in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen.